For this episode of Metaphors Be With You, we'll be talking about a film that I found much harder to watch in the summer of 2020. Hi, I'm Rob Hired of Shipperish Media, and this is a podcast about symbolism and allegory in Star Wars. The movies, the TV shows, the books, and everything else. Except during this appendix to season three, when instead I'm going through the last two movies to find the metaphors hidden in each one. It's worth mentioning that whatever your feelings in the final product, Solo had kind of a difficult journey to becoming a film. It changed course during writing, with John Kazan taking over for his father Lawrence when the elder Kazan was called away to help write The Force Awakens. And it also changed course during principal photography when Ron Howard was brought in to replace Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, who disagreed with the studio about whether they were making a comedy or not. So I'm going to try to death of the author this thing and just talk about the final product, but let's just mention there's a lot of dead authors in here. Turn it to trip in any of the bodies. Like Rogue One before it, Solo does not have an opening crawl, because apparently crawls are for numbered episodes only. Except it looks like no one told the Kasdans, because there's a bunch of text at the top of this movie, beginning with It Is, block-capping the important words, and ending on the four-dot ellipsis that Lucas invented, presumably because in space no one can hear you pause. Point is, it was obviously written as a crawl, and literally the only thing separating it from being the Star Wars crawl is that it's not yellow letters scrolling vertically into infinite space. But that sort of works out, because Solo, a Star Wars story, is literally the only film in the franchise that doesn't begin with a shot of space. It begins with Han hot-wiring a car. This could be read as pointed. Han's only ambition at the start is to get out into space and fly, but he's planet-bound by his circumstances, so that's where we are as well. It's also worth noting that our introduction to Han is him fighting with a vehicle to get it to work for him, much as he will with the Millennium Falcon in The Empire Strikes Back. And I point this out because we're going to reference Empire a lot. Obviously, you can make the argument that a movie written by the co-writer of Empire and his son is just going to reference it a lot, but I think the overwhelming cultural impression of Han Solo is rooted specifically in Empire, though once the special editions came out, preemptively shooting Greedo became an important touchstone as well. The things that this movie highlights about Han, that he's a naturally gifted pilot, that he kind of makes up his plan as he goes, and that he has poor boundaries around kissing women with whom he has complicated relationships, are all from Empire. We don't see Han kiss anyone in A New Hope, and he doesn't do any particularly fancy flying there or in Jedi. To be fair, he does do some improvising on board the Death Star, but he does at least as much in Empire. And improvising leads me to the realization that I was having with dawning horror over this latest rewatch of the film. Follow me closely. Han has no apparent skills or knowledge when we start the movie except piloting. He is relying on Kira to make the plans, Kira to figure out how much money they need, etc. And in general, this continues throughout the movie. Beckett supplies his plan when Kira is unavailable, and the one thing that Han is apparently better than anyone else is flying, and being lucky. We establish the dice early, and reinforce them regularly as a physical totem of Han's natural luck, but they're just there for us to look at. They're not magical in any way, because Kira still has them when Han plays Sabak against Lando. I was annoyed by this moment in my first few viewings, because Lando, an actual professional gambler, should beat Han at space poker as easily as anyone from the World Series of Actual Poker would beat me. Poker is a game of skill with random elements, which is why we have big poker tournaments, and Sabak seems to be basically indistinguishable from it. So the idea that Lando has to cheat in order to beat Han is absurd. And this happens on two different days. Han just prevents the cheat the second time. I don't accept that Han could beat Lando in the skill portion of the game. But what can happen is an extremely skewed luck. If you always draw a better hand than your opponent, you can win. Part of the skill of the game is identifying an opponent with a better hand and folding early, or bluffing successfully. But bluffing doesn't really work against Han Solo because of his unjustifiable but constant belief that everything will work out for him. 
He's apparently been blessed by the Force with extremely reliable luck, and that has taught him to expect that everything will just happen in his favor. And this is why I got more and more uncomfortable watching this movie during the summer of 2020, as I saw this unremarkable white man with unearned gifts blithely assuming that all these life-and-death matters will just simply resolve themselves to his benefit. I didn't love Han the first time I saw the movie, but now that I've seen him as just another overconfident shithead failing his way upward, presumably until he has to manage a space pandemic if he wants to get space re-elected, I fucking hate him. <sighs> Oddly, one bit that I do genuinely like is when Han pickpockets Lando at the end to prevent his cheating. I have no trouble believing, given the implied childhood he would have had, that he's a competent pickpocket, and presumably had to practice that skill. Because here's the thing about Han's virtuoso piloting skills. They're apparently just there waiting for him to fly a ship, like he just happens to have the reflexes, coordination, eyesight, etc. that would make him a natural pilot, which essentially means that he won the genetic lottery and didn't earn that talent either. It's all just luck turtles all the way down. But the societal construction of someone who is a natural at something is always that they deserve whatever reward they reap from it. This to me stinks of the eugenicist framework that the world is made up of worthy and unworthy people, and it's also ridiculous on its face. O.J. Simpson was very good at running fast, so he must be a good person who deserves vast wealth and is incapable of murder. Han Solo is very good at flying ships, but mostly just kind of floats around between people who tell him what to do, and that somehow makes him a hero. What's especially fascinating to me about our protagonist being so mediocre in nearly every way is that it's completely textual. Notice that Lady Proxima and her minions think of Han as completely disposable, but try to convince Kira to stay. As I mentioned, we hear from Han himself that Kira has made the plan and guessed how much money they'll need to escape Corellia, and she's also the one who spots that the Imperial Gate agent is going to double-cross them and insists the bribe be paid on their way through the gate, not before. And of course, we also know that Kira did in fact escape Corellia, and soon enough after Han did that she's already risen pretty far in Crimson Dawn, even though they're only separated for three years total. So Kira is smart and beautiful, but that's just the genetic lottery again. I think the thing that separates her from Han is that she's been through something that has changed her. When we see her with Crimson Dawn, she's attached herself to Dryden Voss, who is very clearly a violent, unstable narcissist. It's not easy to keep such a person content and not murdering you, and she talks about having done things that Han would never understand. And before you argue that Han has also been through bad things, because being in the Imperial Army sucked, can you point to a way it seems to have affected his eternally sunny optimism? It's even a comedy beat when we make our three-year jump to life in the army and we see him flying through the air after an explosion rather than flying starships like he planned. Ha ha! Bottom line, we relate to characters via their vulnerability, and this movie doesn't give Han any of that, but instead it relies on him being Han Solo. We make scenes out of him getting his name, his gun, his dog, and his ship, but none on making him a person. Again, to contrast Han and Kira, when the two of them are fantasizing about leaving Corellia, he wants to fly and she wants to not to be told what to do. One of those is about a fundamental understanding of your place in the universe, and the other is a hobby. And the tragedy of Kira is that she never makes it. When we meet her again, we spend some time in Han's POV noticing her Crimson Dawn brand, then noticing Dryden's ring with the same symbol. Han seems to read this as Dryden and Kira in a romantic relationship, or at least with the kind of patriarchal, this woman is taken, ownership idea of romance. But it's more complicated than that. Both of them wear the same symbol, but Kira's is branded onto her skin because she is property, while Dryden gets to wear his as jewelry, as a status symbol. So personally, I thought it was a great moment when she took the ring off Dryden's body after killing him, but then she just uses it to talk to the next rung up in the organization, who, by the way, is Darth Freaking Maul, so there's exactly zero chance she'll be sword-fighting her way into another promotion. But this isn't surprising, because Kira said just a bit earlier, everybody serves somebody, Han. My read of the scene is that she's implying, except you, 
because that's the fantasy we're selling here, where you're just naturally gifted and everything happens for you and the beautiful woman in your life will just know that you're the good guy, even if you never really do much except get caught up in everyone else's wake. Because Han is just incredibly passive throughout this story, I mentioned how he goes from following Kira to the army to Beckett, but then Emphis Nest comes into his life and says, we're allies, and that's it. Now he's turning around and giving her the coaxium without so much as an introspective moment about what it means to give up on his dream for a cause. Okay, I have griped about Han enough. Let's move on to some of the other elements of the movie. I adore Lando Calrissian. I love him intentionally mispronouncing Han's name as retroactive foreshadowing of what I suspect was just Billy D. Williams accidentally saying it wrong in Empire. I love how he dresses and speaks, but most of all, I love that he is a creature of narrative. Lando is apparently a professional sabacc player, which means that he's a professional liar. Except we hear him say, there are no lies in this game, only players. A telling bit of his philosophy. Lying is built into the game, so it's morally neutral. You can see how that mindset might get to the place where outright cheating with cards hidden up your sleeves is also fine. And this interest in, shall we say, created reality continues outside the sabacc table. He tells Han, everything you've heard about me is true, because Lando finds the story more important than anything as plebeian as objective reality. And of course, he's doing whatever the Star Wars equivalent of writing a memoir is, because a man with a whole room devoted to capes understands that a bigger silhouette leaves a bigger impression. And the story of Lando Calrissian is the silhouette he's busily hanging capes on. Look, sometimes a metaphor works, and sometimes you just have to see it through because you're committed, okay? Speaking of Lando, I love his sidekick, L337, but wow, do I wish she was in a different movie. I've talked a bit about her before in episodes 9 and 13, about droids and sex, respectively. So I'll just briefly reiterate that it's about time a droid pointed out the massive injustices done against droids every day in the galaxy far, far away, and how extremely shitty it is that this is repeatedly played as a joke. In my earlier rants, I didn't even make the connection that this shittiness is made even worse by pairing it up with the adventures of Han Solo, mediocre white man, failing upward we laugh at this stand-in for marginalized groups everywhere, and how she wants equal rights or whatever. And the end game of this movie is that L3 will be imprisoned in the Falcon forever, and then also gets separated from the only human that means anything to her, because Han Solo is somehow entitled to this ship. And let's take a moment to dwell on that. If Han just wanted any old YT-1300 light freighter, he could presumably buy, or more likely, luck his way into one. He wants the Millennium Falcon, specifically. Why? What makes her different from all the other ships of her model? Just that Lando did a bunch of modifications on her, and now she contains L3's brain. So Han Solo has decided that he is entitled to this particular ship because of the labor and personal connection that Lando has to it. If only feelings of white entitlement to black labor were unusual. And we, the audience, primed by decades of Han and the Falcon as an inseparable pair, are expected to think of it as natural and inevitable that Han should have it. But the story as presented is absolutely monstrous. Modify your own ship, Han! He does claim, in A New Hope, that he's made a lot of special modifications himself, but we have no way of knowing if that's true. We can be pretty confident he wasn't the only one modifying her, though. On the subject of characters about whom I have complicated feelings, let's talk about Emphis Nest. First of all, pro tip for any writers out there, if you're going to introduce a proper noun that's entirely made up, be sure the audience can tell in the first sentence or two what kind of thing that proper noun is. For whatever reason, on my first viewing, I decided that Emphis Nest was the name of the gang, and nothing in the first conversation about her clarifies that. I lost valuable immersion trying to get my bearings on this character when I should have been awed or frightened or something. Emphasis Gang follows the Tuscan Raiders and a handful of expanded universe species as a stand-ins for Native Americans whenever Star Wars wants to dig into its spaghetti western influences, and it doesn't really make it any less racist. That said, I'm actually super into Emphasis' costume design and general aesthetic. I just wish she wasn't occupying such a tropey space. 
I'm also kind of puzzled by the big reveal about Emphis, where Beckett says that Nest's gang are just marauders, all they know how to do is kill. To which she replies by taking off her helmet, and the movie gives us like 10 full seconds to react to the fact she's a young woman and not, I don't know, Anakin Skywalker under there. We spend so long on this reaction that I and others wondered if she was maybe a daughter to Beckett and Val? But no, we're apparently just supposed to be shocked that this scary badass was a girl. Thanks, patriarchy. And once we have this reveal, and she tells us that Crimson Dawn, the merciless criminal syndicate we've been building up this whole movie, has an origin story where they were merciless and criminal, Han suddenly does a 180 and is willing to give up all his MacGuffinite he's worked so hard to acquire all this time. It's borderline eerie how passive a protagonist Han is. This woman shows up and declares, we're not marauders, we're allies. To which I say, doesn't everyone have to agree to be allies? We're getting into the lightning round here, where I just have one or two observations to make per character. With Beckett, it feels like some unintentional comedy that in the scene where we give Han the Blastech DL-44 blaster pistol he would use in other movies, and we come just short of having an angelic choir sing when it lands in front of him, the business that Beckett is going through to delay this handoff is taking accessories off the gun, turning it from a rifle-looking weapon to an oversized pistol. Han Solo is about to get his signature weapon, but first Beckett is going to remove all the parts that say grown-ups only. With Dryden Voss, I find his yacht interesting, since its shape is much more reminiscent of a pointy office building than a traditional Star Wars ship. I wonder if it's supposed to resemble an upraised blade? And speaking of blades, I find it hilarious that in their final battle, Han literally brings a gun to a knife fight with Voss, but decades of lightsabers have convinced us that he's somehow the underdog here. As my last lightning round observation, I'm not sure it needs commenting on, but it's obviously right in this show's wheelhouse to point out that while all Star Wars media has a bit of influence from the spaghetti westerns, this movie really leans in, with an actual train job, a showdown where we get a holster's eye view of the opponents, and the aforementioned motorcycle gang slash Native American tribe. But it still sticks out to me that Han riding off into the sunset here for the freedom of the open skies is actually Han heading straight to Jabba the Hutt to take orders and also begin a relationship that we know will end with a price on his head. On to intertextual points. I complained about this in an earlier episode, but it seems to me that the loathsome subplot of L3 being grafted onto the Falcon is intended to retroactively justify 3PO's comment in Empire that the ship has a most peculiar dialect. It's also super weird that Tobias Beckett killed Aura Singh and Lando owed her money. Aura Singh is the pale, bald woman with a topknot we see for a couple seconds watching the pod race in The Phantom Menace. Other sources have made her kind of a big deal bounty hunter, so we're giving Beckett some fairly serious street cred here and also making Lando a guy shady enough to have hired a dangerous mercenary and then stiffed her on the bill. But Beckett apparently also knows Bosk, the reptile body hunter among the group that Vader hires in Empire, so that's just how he rolls, I guess. But my favorite intertextual point in the movie is Dryden offering our hero some colo clawfish. If you didn't know, this is one of the giant underwater creatures that the Jedi are attacked by in the Phantom Menace as they navigate through a Naboo's core. And this would be just a cute throwaway reference using an established Star Wars term, Except the specific animal here is the one that gets eaten by a yet larger monster, cueing Qui-Gon to tell us there's always a bigger fish. Which reads to me as a perfect metaphor for this whole Crimson Dawn situation where Beckett and Kira work for Dryden, who works for Maul. Time to talk about my favorite part, which is Donald Glover's performance as Lando. I thought it was a brilliant choice to let us hear him before we see him, because his intonation and cadence are just spot on to Billy D. Williams' original. But even more than the accuracy of the impression, I find Glover funny and charming and even sympathetic, and I very much hope the recent rumor about him starring in a Lando series on Disney Plus turns out to be true. And those are my thoughts about metaphors in Solo, but I'd love to hear what I missed. Talk to me on Twitter at rhyrate, or if you're a Chipperish patron, you can chat with me and the other Chipperish hosts in our Discord room. If you're not a Chipperish patron, you can rectify that at patreon.com chipperish. Thanks for listening, and metaphors be with you.